You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. You're listening to Land of Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. We have got... A special announcement for the Sportsman's Nation podcast. Dan has just told us that we can start talking about the new RSS feed that will be coming onto the podcast. Um, and is a big game Western hunting themed podcast. Dan is doing an excellent job to expand the Sportsman Nation and really get a bunch of new content out there and really drive folks to the Western themed podcast. And, um, I'm excited to go back and listen to some of these things. And, you know, we always talk about um, going out west and, you know, just the landscape and um, getting out there to hunt soon. Hopefully in the next coming years, we're going to have some time to do it. But um, that information will be coming soon. And basically a whole new feed under Sportsman's Nation devoted to western hunting. Ain't that cool? Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned hopefully we'll have time i'll say if we don't find time in the next two years i'll be handing in my resignation <laughs> to who <laughs> to myself yeah. and then your wife's gonna look at you and say um you better get back to work. i'm not doing this again is yeah what she's gonna yeah say. exactly oh well anyway yeah so and i we encourage you wherever you're listening whether it be stitcher itunes google play whatever it is um, please give us a review if you like it and uh if it's on itunes uh, specifically give us a shout out so we know who you're talking about anyway and what do we always say if you don't have anything nice to say don't say it at all yeah you say that <laughs> um that's what mama said yeah so if you don't like it if you don't like the podcast be sure to send us an email so we can change what it is you don't <laughs> yeah. like about it that way we can get you to leave a review um and then check us out on facebook and instagram land and legacy yeah. Uh, yeah. for posts daily uh, of all the things we do some days it may be um, consulting some days it may be hunting some days it may be real estate we wear many hats and but i think uh whatever hat it is there's something for you um and like we said uh like i just mentioned we are real estate agents for mossy oak properties here in missouri if you're looking to buy or sell land um more specifically if you're looking elsewhere too um i guess anywhere Give us a shout. Anywhere, anywhere. Give us a shout, and we'll be glad to help you. Um, that goes for everybody. If you're looking to buy land, and you're like, "Boy, I wonder if it's going to be, um, it's going to be uh, any good for deer hunting or quail hunting or whatever it is, recreational," um, and you're not sure, give us a shout. We'll help you any way we can. Well, you know what is also super exciting, Adam. It's almost turkey season. Well, seriously, yesterday I caught myself watching. Um, some turkey hunting videos in the background at the uh, at the office. Like you know what, I just kind of put one on to see, and then that led to three or four, and then yeah. Anyhow, no, it is fire season is really really rapidly approaching, and I say that kind of loosely fire season because really if you're in an area and the conditions are right and you have fuel, anytime is fire season. We'll dive into that here in a few, but. Really, this is a big time for a lot of landowners, um, 
and and state agencies, federal agencies who who begin to start doing prescribed fire throughout the timber to manage things. And you know, if you're an area that that a lot of those agencies or, or landowners do that, get ready because it's coming and conditions are getting right. So that's exciting for us because one, we get busy, and two, we love to burn. Yep, and I think. Uh, when you say that loosely, it's like I, I think back of uh, the year I spent working for the Missouri Department of Conservation, and it was like, all right, it's spring, it's February, March, April. Basically, it was mainly February and March, and it was like, okay, well, it's uh, humidity's dropping, it's time to burn. This is burn year. This is a burn season. And then I go back and I start, of course, studying fire, and it's like, um. We should have been burning year round, and so hopefully as this podcast will uh, will uh, hopefully open some eyes for guys that typically get caught in the only burning and winter winter burns basically, and uh, late winter burns and and kind of get caught in that box of okay that's that's when to burn. But as you'll learn through this podcast, there's many other times to burn um, that probably be a little bit more beneficial for your wildlife than just your late winter burns. So. So we're definitely going to cover all that information. And a couple of weeks ago, we we talked about just basic the basics of prescribed podcast fire. number forty four, and that was really laying the foundation for um, this podcast as we dive really deep into some of the details about kind of the why, the how, to um, what to expect, and some techniques involved with using prescribed fire. So we're going we're diving in deeper. So if you haven't listened to that one, you you know kind of fresh on prescribed fire. Maybe go back and listen to that one, get a good basis, and then come in and dive into this one because um, we're going to be referencing some things we covered during that podcast. So we can guarantee you one thing. You're going to learn about the benefits of fire. Oh, yeah. You're going to learn about, historically speaking, fire, and you're going to get to hear Matt say dive in over 10 dive times. Dive in. Don't dive into the fire. No. Anyway, so... That podcast forty four, we talked a lot about the basics, what to look for, kind of the the prep as we get closer to the burn. This one, we're going to walk you through um, some more of the benefits, but also the process of building the fire line, how to conduct the fire, things like that. And as always, it's best to go to class, learn everything you can. Uh, your state agency may conduct prescribed fire classes. Um, get a bunch of help, educate yourself as much as you can on prescribed fire before you just start dropping fuel and, and damaging property. Um, always be cautious when you're doing this. This is very important. Um, it could be very destructive if you're not careful. Um, and let's face it, you could lose the farm over it. So You wouldn't want that. No. So no. That's when you would dive into the fire. Um, <laughs> yeah. I lost it all. I'm, <laughs> I'm going, going in. I'm going in. <laughs> so, um, anyway, Matt, the preparation is so key for prescribed fire, and really, you know, once we talk about okay, when you can burn, how you can burn, you're kind of prepping for the next fire throughout the entire year. Um, and what we really mean is having fire lines in place and building fire line if necessary, and what what constitute as a fire line? You know, how can you, how can you build it? Can you do it by hand? Do you have to have big equipment? Well, what, what is a fire line? And honestly, fire lines look different across so many mm. different landscapes. And it depends on how much pressure is on you. Oh, for um, sure. For sure. Because I've been on fires where it's a little bit of a wildfire. Um, I think one time for an MDC wildfire and a, a goat trail was a, was a good fire break. Yeah. Um, sometimes but, you just have, you deal with what you got, you know, yeah. you make it work. That was the cards that have been dealt and we're like, all right, this is what we're tying into. We're fighting it off this line. And so we burned back, burned off that line and, and got it under control, but it's not ideal and we wouldn't encourage that. But from a consultation standpoint, and this is one thing we always, always talk about when we're on properties is developing a road system that works on the property and not only works to access your property strategically to hunt it, but also to manage it. And that's where a good road system around the boundary, so you're not interfering with 
game as they're moving through the property, but to be able to burn the majority of your property if those road systems are in place. And again, that's not just for access, but for fire breaks as well. And if you have a good road system, man, a lot of the legwork is is done before you even drop a match the, to basically to prepare from that point on is super easy for the each burn. Yeah, I think that's honestly kind of when it comes to looking at, let's just say you're you're on the market to buy a, a new piece of ground, that could be the the deal breaker for us if we were to if you were to contact us and we were to go walk the property with you and we look at it and let's just say there's steep up and down ridges and there's no way to really get a fire or a a fire line or an access road around the border and the rest of it's going to be put in by hand line that's a lot of a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money that's going to go into it and we'd probably say we need to walk away from this property and that's just kind of planning long term why it's important to have a road system around the boundary that's for sure. And if let's say we do have that road system in place before a fire, what is the thing that we need to do prior to that fire before dropping that match? As always, when it comes to fire line, it's removing anything that's that can carry or can catch from the line. So that could be grass, that could be leaves, that could be sticks. Whatever it is, we need to remove anything that can burn. And so... In a road, a lot of times here in timber country or down south, it could be pine needles or leaves. So we're getting those out of the road and by means of leaf blow, backpack blower, whatever it is, rake. Ideally for us, the the quickest and most effective tool is a backpack blower. You could walk in place on a road. Oh, man, I, I was... It was trying to get me for 10 seconds over here. Um, but the easiest thing to do, right, with a nice uh, kind of a heavy-duty backpack blower is just a walking pace, clearing those roads, getting up debris off, and moving on and, and covering some ground. Um, that's the easiest thing to do. And, and again, that, that takes no time prep work for fires. Backpack uh, blower chainsaws like the two. Bread and butter. Yeah. And a hand, build even it. a hand rake. You could do so much with a hand rake on a fire. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, that's just like the the must-haves of fire is a, a leaf blower and a chainsaw. So now let's talk about a field edge because a field edge can also um, take the place of a fire line. You know, it can it can wear that hat too. And if you have a field edge, how do you best prepare that field edge to burn off of or 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 basically be a good fire break? You know, throughout the property. when it comes to fields and it doesn't even have to be a field edge if you're cutting a line through the middle of the field um, or prairie and a lot of times that's the case you have a field that extends on to the neighbor and so you have to build a line around it around your access or your access road around the border this is where it's very important in grass or field to make a good break Um, ideally we're we kind of always shoot for at least a 10 foot 10 foot fire break uh, when it comes to field, if there's a lot of vegetation, maybe it's 20 foot. Um, but always, if it's tall grass, first thing we, I like to do is bush hog it, get that vegetation knocked down. And then the next thing we'll do, if we, if we can, and this is where it, this is where our best use for a disc comes in, is for by disking sure. this fire line. So you mow it. And disc it. Turn that soil just slightly, just so you remove the fuel. And uh, you want to expose dirt. You want to see dirt. Fire yeah. isn't going to crawl across that dirt. No. And but if you just mow it, you've got a lot of thatch there on the ground, and fire can carry through that dead thatch. And I, we were on a fire this past fall that was yeah. a native prairie that the Nature Conservancy owned, and uh, so we couldn't disc. So we mowed it the guy that we were helping mowed it as short as they could there was still a lot of thatch there um and what we used was a couple of atv units with a with a uh, big tank of water on the back and uh basically we wet down all that thatch put a wet line in and burn right off the wet line another thing you could do is if you have a boom sprayer just fill it up with water and uh spray that line down right before the burn Yep. And and when we talk about right before the burn, 
like right before the burn because yeah. on, on days where it's windy or really when you're dry, burning it's going to be low humidity yeah. so it'll dry up quick so it's important to take that moisture out so and honestly line, it, right that's when it. it's important to have a guy on that unit with the tank and if it starts to creep he can just drive by it and spray it and wet yes. it all down so yes so anyway field edges that that covers pretty well you can mow you can disc disking is great option um and and really quickly too you know it doesn't take much again these are light disking you don't have to run it twice turn it over and get you know clean soil ready to plant um and another one and that well, while you're doing the disking another thing thinking ahead is in the fall you can disc that line and plant wheat or clover ideally wheat an annual and uh that way you have a really green um, growth that's also um, there instead of just dirt. Yeah. So yep. now it's you have a food plot all the way right on the edge right of your field. Um, creek system. Creek system is within the timber. I don't know how many fires we've... we've Too many. <laughs> ...had burn units and used cr- the creek system, a rocky gravelly creek bed or it could be a sandy creek bed does not matter but that be a fire line as well and to do that that's where the backpack blower comes extremely um, useful because you can walk down that creek bed walk the edges blow the leaves off that creek bed and then that's your fire line you burn off of that and it's it it saves so much time from putting in the hand line and, and that involves a chainsaw that involves um, leaf blowers, sometimes two leaf blowers because you're doing it hopefully prior to the burn. There's a lot of um, duff leaf litter on the ground. So you kind of go take the top off and then someone walks in behind and cleans it off. Um, that can be kind of a slow process. So anytime you can tie into a creek system, blow that out, man, that's great. But one thing that you always have to look for in the creeks are the log jams from a flood or whatever. Sometimes those dead logs can jam up in the creek break those down because those might be an extending from bank to bank and could carry a fire across that creek and you would not want that to happen you could call it a log jam or a snake house so be careful when you're doing that <laughs> yeah no thanks i'll let someone else do basically that you just want that creek to be back to water or rock but not just a rock. bunch of leaves or log jams yep fire lines so obviously those are extremely extremely important so before you ever drop a match on any prescribed burn unit, walk those fire lines. Double check. Walk them out. You're always going to have a backpack blower, but be sure that you have those in place and cleaned off and ready to rock and roll. A black, black blower. A back, black, blur, blur. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to walk early. the fire lines twice, um, and I'm not sure it's the next on the... On the uh, list of notes but it definitely is coming up and um, when you're walking the fire line first time is just to make sure you have a good 10 plus foot wide break where there's no fuel the other thing you need to be looking for is just on the inside of the fire line so it's on the inside of the fire unit your burn you're unit. burning yes yes it's the area that you will be burning and you're looking for snags what is a snag you ask a dead tree um, is basically what I'm talking about and you're looking for trees that are dead um, that will start to burn at the base when the fire goes by, and it'll burn all the way up to the top, and you have fire basically 60 foot up a tree. And now if you have any wind at all, it's going to throw embers across the line and light the area that's not inside the burn unit. This could be a huge problem for you, and snags are not to be overlooked. Not to be overlooked, but you know that was. it sounds super, super scary, but just walking that fire line in extra time and it's, you know that first time you're concentrating on the ground what's your fire line look like walk the walk it again and now you're kind of peering up into the canopy okay where are my where are my snags at find those locate them but really once you've located them the work's easy you can control it and and either you have two options basically you get your chainsaw out and you cut the snag down or you you have a backpack blower and you blow a huge line around that you clear out the leaves all around that snag so fire doesn't get to it. And when you, you say huge, he's another ten foot, basically ten to fifteen foot diameter around, around yeah. this around this snag. Um, 
you have two options. For me, ideally you have a crew of two to three guys that are making this fire line. Maybe it's just two guys. One guy's um, on snag duty and the other guy's on fire break duty. One guy's looking for snags and cutting them down. He's got the chainsaw, cutting stuff out of the trail. The other guy's just blowing the leaves out or pine needles. Um, and so it's really important to be looking for those snags. And you have two options when it comes to the snag. Uh, actually, there's three, but two. You can cut it down before the fire, or you can cut it down when it is on fire. Trust me, the first option is best. Um, when you try to cut it down when it is on fire or slightly on fire, just throwing embers everywhere, and it's not a good thing. Done it a lot for the MDC. Um, it's something to avoid. So cut them before the fire. It'll save you a lot of pain. Yeah, because honestly, what they act like is a chimney. Because mm-hmm. typically they're going to be hollow. They're very dry. If you're burning on on conditions, you know, below forty uh, percent humidity, that that tree can catch mm. pretty quickly because it's super dry. It does not have very mo- much moisture in the air. So once it catches, it's going to burn inside, and it acts like a chimney. Fire goes up to the top, and that's where you have more winds, higher winds typically than on the ground. And those embers are coming out the top of that dead snag and have the potential to jump the line. Yeah. So taking care of it ahead of time is super, super important. Here's a rule of thumb. It's a third. It's in a, a rule of thirds. So basically, if your snag is 100 foot tall, you want to make sure that it's... And you're wondering, is that is that high enough to throw embers? You want it to be three times the length from the line. So if it's 100 foot tall, it needs to be 300 foot off the line. For it to not throw embers or or that that risk be severely decreased. Yes. So just kind of do that that measurement in your head. If there's any question, take care of it. That's either blowing blowing leaves out around it or just cutting it down prior to the fire. Or a lot of times you can just push them over. Yeah. Go give them a good push and see if you can push it over. It's dead anyway, so... I think that, that really covers prep work for the fire line situation. We covered creeks, we covered field edges, we covered road systems, snags. Those are the really important things. So once What you, if you don't have any of those? What if it's straight timber? Get to work. Oh, fun. That's where <laughs> a lot of fire line I've built over the years of, of areas, especially in mountainous country where you don't have roads everywhere. Okay, there's no road, there's no field. I can't drive anything in there. How do I build a line? Well, we mentioned it, backpack blower or blowers and a chainsaw. And basically, you're just going to have to cut a road system out. What looks like a road yeah, system. and you're just system. Yes, and you're just blowing out all the leaves um, 10 foot wide all the way down however far you got to go. And this, again, is why if you've done this before, this is why knowing how important a road system is around a property boundary so you can avoid this because you've done it once. You're like, man, I should have had that road in. Yeah. But it is it is another option if you do not have that a good road system throughout the property. And we won't spend much time on it, but there are government programs that help offset costs for implementing and building fire lines and fire breaks. Correct, correct. So be sure to check out your local uh, NRCS office to be yeah. able to see if you're eligible for those programs. Now, fire line is in place. You've got the work done. Now we're getting to day of prep work. Before you drop that match, what are you doing? What's kind of your little checklist, last-minute deal before going in and and lighting the fire off? First thing I always do is check the weather. Got to. Just like we talked in podcast number 44, I'm going through the weather, the fire weather, and seeing kind of has it panned out the way we predicted it to? Is the humidity going to get low enough that I can carry fire? But is it not going to get too low? Uh, I'm checking all that. What's the Haynes index? What's the ceiling height? What's the vent rate? Everything like that just to know that, okay, it's ideal. Low enough humidity, not too low. Smoke's going to get out of here. And uh, I won't have to worry about it drifting over a highway or anything. So, yep, that's all set. What's the next thing, Matt? Next thing? call the fire department, the local fire department, just to let them know, hey, I'm conducting a prescribed fire today on my property. They're most likely going to ask you your address. They're going to ask you how large of a, an acreage you're burning, what it is you're burning, and if you need any assistance. Have those answers. 
for them. Be prepared, and let just let them know. Because so for they're example, gonna get, they're gonna get calls. Yes, they they're, will they're get, calls. get calls. Neighbors are gonna call. Hey, I think it's gonna burn over here on my place. Or I see smoke. I see smoke. You know, someone driving down the road. Whatever it may be, they're gonna get calls, and that allows them that information that you're gonna provide allows them to put maybe neighbors or, or passerbys at ease. Hey, we know about it. They're doing their thing. They they're prepared. They've got line in place. Um, they know so, what they're doing. Hello, this is Adam Keith, and let's just skip through this as fast as we can. Hello, this is Adam Keith. I have a property down here on Old Five Highway, six miles south of Mansfield, Missouri. Um, I'm going to be conducting a prescribed fire today. I have lines in place. We're burning 10 acres of woods. I have plenty of help. No need to no need to uh, send the crew out here. Everything's under control. It should take a couple of hours. I'll call you when I'm finished. Okay, thank you, sir. Bye. It's that simple. Just let them know what's happening. Give them the details. Ring, that- ring, ring. Hey, this is Adam Keith. Two hours later, uh, we conducted our burn. Great success. Jim got burned up, but we're all good. Yeah, we had to call the ambulance for that one. No, kidding. <laughs> no. Kidding, kidding, kidding. Hopefully that's not the case at all. Um, hey, everything's burned. Everything went great. Lines contained. Fire's all out. Done. That's it. Another big thing is check your equipment. One other thing, it's not on the notes, but it is always good to notify your neighbors. Yeah, yeah. Especially um, if you like them. Especially the ones that are, are going to uh, call. <laughs> yeah. The ones that, you know, a, a majority of smoke may be going towards, even if it gets up and, and um, to the upper atmosphere quickly, just let them know. Hey, you might you might be experiencing a little bit of smoke. You know, everything's good. We're just we're doing a little bit of burn today. Yes, and, and that's it why it's be, always it hang around long. It's always important to have good relationships with your neighbors. Hopefully, yeah. um, to where may, maybe they're even going to help you on the fire, and then you're going to help them with their fire. Who knows? But it's always best to let them know. Yep. So now we're we're checking our equipment. We we've got our chainsaws, we've got our blowers, we've got the rakes, and of course we've got extra water out there. But make sure those chainsaws fire up. Make sure the blower starts quickly. Make sure they're fueled up because you don't want to get on the fire line and maybe have a little bit of a jump off the fire line and you can't get your blower started. Just basically it's preventative maintenance. Make sure everything is lined out, they're working properly, and they're fueled up and ready to rock and roll. Chainsaw is sharp. Yep. You've got you know maybe a scrunch in your pocket um, or you've got a small fuel container, whatever it may be. Um, just be prepared. It takes five minutes to do, but it's super important. It may, it may, um, may save, you know, an acre, you know, you didn't mean to burn. Um, it may save that. So just take that extra time. Um, and did I mention water? Pack water, pack lots of water. And Um, granola bars. You're going to be going through water. Um, so have that. And then radios. Those are super important to be able to communicate with everyone working the fire. Um, you, you've got to have that constant communication between everyone. So, you know, where, you know, if you're watching the line, you know, where the people who are actually putting the flame down, where they're at, what they're experiencing, what part of the burn they're at. If conditions are changing where they're at on the fire, you know, in hilly terrain, we, we can experience so many different types of winds, um, shading, whatever it may be. So you need to know and have the communication between everyone what that fire is doing, how it's reacting to those conditions, or if you need to move down the fire line, your fire um, has backed off the line far enough where it's very safe, you can move down. You need to have that communication. So a a two-way radio, excellent to have. Um, Honestly, pretty essential to have. Yeah, I wouldn't honestly do one without it. Yes. Communication. Yelling is is not a proper form of communication on a fire. You can't yell through smoke. You can't yell through... (laughs) flames ripping either or backpack blowers yeah Yeah. you're not going to get the message across so definitely have that radio system in check battery's good they're charged up ready to rock and roll after after that is all set after you've done that you've done the checklist man now now's the fun part now's where the work really begins yeah i that's when the old pyro and me gets real excited um and i I think uh, when it comes to fires, this is probably the most exciting time for me is right before you get ready to start dropping some fuel and uh, lighting some stuff It's kind of like you want to huddle up. 
you know, get like that little chant going on with everyone. Huddle up, boys. They might do that in Virginia, but around here we don't do that. What, what do you do? Go around slapping each other? We say, all butts? right, guys, let's, let's get this baby lit. Let's change some habitat here. Fun. Yeah. You guys are really energetic over there. Well, we are. I, I don't we don't, I don't guess we get together. We do get together and sing Kumbaya, you know. Once it's done, you got soot all over your face. Smoke, yeah. yeah. You can hardly breathe. <clears throat> Man, it's all worth it, though. I'd like to take this time to thank our partners, RTP Outdoors, for helping us launch this Land of Legacy podcast. If it wasn't for them, this would not be possible. RTP is the maker of the Genesis Drill the Goliath Crimper, and the Groundbreaker. If you have anything food plot related, contact these guys. They'll get you squared away, whether it's seed, equipment. Give them a call. So when it comes to the fire, for me, we we just started dropping. Now it's how how in the world do we even begin? Now, there's a lot of things to consider. Terrain being one of them and wind direction being the other. When it comes to a fire in our country, okay, I want to start out on the side to where basically the prevailing wind. So if I have a wind from the west, I'm going to start out on the east side. This is where it can get somewhat confusing, though, is because if there is a big slope and the west side is the, we're, we're on an east-facing slope, and so the west side of the fire unit is the high side, then I'm going to start out on the high side. Terrain takes uh, precedence over congratulations i think everyone is turned around <laughs> yeah I, and that's why it is complex because it, it is very complex you have to understand that okay on a in a flat fire unit it's important to light on the side basically where the wind is blowing um so if you have a west wind again and it's a flat terrain you're going to start on the east yes. to back it into the wind you don't want that. You don't want a head fire right away. You want to start on the east side and let that fire come off that line and burn into the unit, creating a black line within your unit. Yes, and then if it's terrain country, and your terrain is going from it's lower on the east and it climbs a hill to the west, you want to start at the top on the west end of the unit and let it back down the terrain. Two ways to really get a head fire. That's using the wind and letting it burn with the wind. So in flat country, you would light it and let the wind sweep it across the plains, if you will. And then if you're in terrain, hilly country, mountainous country, you'd light at the bottom of the hill and let it climb up to the top with let's, a head fire. Let's real real quick cover backing and head fire so people can understand what that is and the, the big difference that they are. Man. Um, so backing fires are a lot more I hate to say it, but controlled or or calmer. Yeah, is they're the slower word. moving fire. Just slower moving fire, uh, smaller flame heights, and that really is kind of the ideal situation for in a lot of places. So on a typical timber burn, if we're doing a backing fire, flame height really is between six eight inches to a foot and a half. Yeah. If we haven't burned it in a while and there's a lot of leaves, probably that foot, foot and a half range. But if we burn it on a typical two, three year rotation, you know, we're not having that much leaf litter, enough to carry the fire, but it's going to be about six to eight inches high. So very, very small flame height. And it's just easing through the timber. It's a lot slower. Very slow paced. That's sometimes you get in trouble because it's taking too long and you're like, ugh. You get a little impatient. Yeah. Let's go set a head fire. So a head fire is basically the exact opposite. A head fire, if you're like trying to visualize what a head fire looks like, think of what the news channel shares out west and you see these huge flame heights just ripping up hills. That's what we would call a head fire. Now, in a situation where you don't have as much uh, fuel or the humidity is a little bit higher, we're still looking at multiple feet high flame climbing up a hill. Um, Or in grasslands... You're seeing 10, let's say, 5-foot-plus flame heights. And and that's the thing with, with grasses. We're not going to cover a bunch, but you can get very tall flame heights, and they move very, very quickly um, if you have head fires in the wind. And they, they will rip. Backing fire crackles, head fire roars. Roars. I mean roars. Get your so, attention. Roar. Yeah. The one where you hear it, you hear somebody else lighting on the line, you're like, 
Is that a train? What am I hearing over there? And that's a head fire. Yeah. So that's the two different types. So you've got the line. You've, you've, you're starting to back it off the line. And you're creating that black area. Let's say you are you are in terrain country. And you've backed it off the line 20, 30 feet. And you're getting to about the crest of a hill. You know, you the, the sloping down into a creek bottom, maybe down to a fire line. What's another thing that we can use, another technique that we can use on that slope to maybe speed up the process? Because we know on top of that slope, it's already burned. So it's not going to go anywhere. We've got a large area that's already black. What's the other technique, Adam, that we can use on that slope to encourage the fire to move a little bit quicker? Um, I'm assuming you're talking about head fire in it at the bottom of the hill. Um, Stripping that. Oh, you just go, okay. <laughs> I, we got to talk. Well, that's what we're going to have to break down. What kind of our techniques here in a little bit, because we're like uh, there because we do use head fires on a lot of mm-hmm. our uh, prescribed fire plans, but it comes at a perfect time. Um, Matt's wanting me to discuss stripping it out. Um, basically, when we discuss stripping it out, how to speed up a fire. And that's the process of walking 10, 20 30 yards, and it all depends on what kind of flame heights you get out of stripping it out. So I've walked in from the fire that's backing down the hill, and I've gone 10 foot away. There's no trees between me and the fire, and I've lit it, and I'm going to watch and see what kind of flame heights I get before it ties in with my other backing fire. Oh, it was only a foot. Okay, I'm going to walk a 10-foot yard strip in between my backing fire, basically just downhill from my backing fire, and I'm going to light it and let it borderline head fire into the backing line. So you're just advancing that fire and going in front of it, sending little tiny mini head fires 10 yards, 10 feet at a time to meet that backing fire. And that's basically just speeding the process of getting that slope burned off it may take minutes to back that 10 10 yards it'll only take seconds for that head fire to go across it correct that's the difference so now that you're you're basically running that slope you're running you're side sloping the entire thing you're going in front of that backing fire all the way around the slope sending these the little head fire up and then you're going to drop back down the slope a little further and do the same thing, come right back the other way. And by doing that, you're getting it burned off quicker. But like Adam said, you need to watch the flame heights and how that flame and, and leaf litter is reacting. Because if you start getting much higher flame heights than foot and a half, then you're going to want to make those intervals, how much you're basically you're biting off each little head fire sending, you're going to want to lessen that down. You don't want to damage anything. And by, by basically constantly monitoring those flame heights, you, you basically you're, you're kind of predicting what's going to happen there in the future, if you will. Yeah. It, to me, every time you grab a drip torch, it's almost like you're a painter and you have a canvas now because you can change it. You can get it hotter. Um, for me, in the stripping it out, you in a perfect scenario it's a straight line but a lot of times it's more of a zigzag type line because i don't want to send a head fire through a, a, a an area that has a big beautiful white oak stand um and i don't want to but i may want to extend it out and give it a 30 yard gap if there's no trees no mature trees and it's just a bunch of young sass, sassafras or saplings growing and i want to send a head fire through there to make sure i i top kill those trees so when I'm stripping it out, there's always kind of a zigzag look. Yeah, you're you're looking ahead. Okay, what what does that quality in the next 20 yards in front of me look like? Because that's gonna predict how much again you're you're biting off and, and you're you're going. Um, what how you're gonna use the flame to your advantage? And sometimes, even if you've got a really big opening and a white oak up there, and you want to bite off a little bit more, what you can do real quickly is run up to the top side of that white oak and drop a little bit of flame there. And let it move up and then come back and continue on that line. So when fire, I think everyone's probably seen or they may not have known what it's called, but a cat face tree. 
and that is where a fire has moved through the timber and burnt on the top side of a tree. The uphill side, usually. Uphill side. Fire has gone from the bottom, wrapped around, and gotten really hot right on the back side of that tree and caused the damage to the tree. And you can see the remnants of that years later on where it's basically growth has kind of... It's basically a dead portion of a tree um, that... On, on that little uphill side. Kind of looks like a buck rub from years years way back when, but it starts at the ground and goes up a little bit. Yeah. That's because it was so hot right there that it, it damaged the tree. So if you go and put a little bit of flame down on a, on a tree, you don't want to damage it all. Right on that top side, it burns before the head fire gets there and doesn't create that hot little um, pocket to damage the tree. So stripping out is, is kind of um, a speedier process when it comes to getting a burn unit burned off and you're really every time you're dropping that flame predicting or, or, or painting a picture of what you want that habitat to be. Um, and that, that's a, that's a really good process. You walk a lot miles. Yeah. It takes a lot of fuel to strip out a fire line, especially if it's a big unit. Um, and that's kind of, I don't know where we're at in the notes, but that's kind of the difference in, um, there's some places where we don't, if we're in terrain country, that's where we're from. That's where we manage a lot. So that's kind of what we talk about um, and reference a lot. But if I'm in areas with any sort of terrain change, I definitely, um, when I'm looking at burning, the north-facing slopes typically is where some of our best timbers at. So we don't head fire up there because we know in the future that's where we're going to get some value out of our logs. But if it's a south-facing slope, it's glady, that's an area that we're going to send a head fire up mm-hmm. through basically keep the trees back and get more native grasses and forbs growing it's very easy for saplings we were actually at a property this week um that hadn't had fire and what was a managed savanna i would say 10 years ago or so Mm -hmm. but in that amount of time saplings oak saplings from those larger trees had come in and they were so thick you couldn't see through them 10 15 yards and you would see the remnants of these large post oaks, but you couldn't see 10 yards through there because the saplings had, had grown and they were inch, two inches thick, but 10 foot tall. And it's going to take a heck of a fire to move through there to really, really control those. Um, and when you, and when, that's kind of the difference and wherever we're at in the notes, but whenever you go and you're looking at that area and you're trying to picture it and you see big, big, um, post oak scattered and then a bunch of saplings and matt says it takes it's going to take a heck of a fire to knock those saplings back and you wonder what's going to happen to those big trees historically speaking uh, when we look at prescribed fire especially in the area that this farm is located fire was a huge part of the ecosystem and so and and even up into the 80s this area was bur- notoriously known for huge areas getting burned off. A lot of the landowners just they were big landowners and they they burned they used fire and to they help weren't as particular habitat. about it as we were with fire no, lines. They would no. basically just light it and let it burn and wherever it went that's gravel where it road went. to gravel road. Yeah, and uh, these south facing slopes, these species, post oak, uh, chinkapin, they're a little more fire tolerant. They're a species that has developed or adapted to these south facing slopes and that have been burned and and not only that but they're in areas most likely they've been saved from the terrain so wherever they're at you send a head fire up through there and the fire just historically speaking from the bottom to the top burning um, maybe they're in a little crevice or the way the fire went up the hill it slowed down or, or was knocked down a little bit right before it got to that area around the tree so it didn't damage the tree that's how you get the kind of the dotted savanna canopy closure on these slopes because of the little terrain features in these slopes and the way that those trees have survived in that area over time, even with the presence of fire. I was listening to a webinar not, not long ago, maybe a month, and he was talking about that now this guy that does it is all about prescribed fire across the landscape and um and I, I thought of a kind of a story because he mentioned terrain saving trees and how like, okay, here's a fire unit, but I'm going to bust it up because I don't want to send, I don't want to burn through this beautiful stand of white oaks, but it's in an area, it's a south facing slope. It's been burned historically. 
These trees are hundreds of years old, so they've experienced tons of prescribed fire, but yet they've been saved. Mm. How have they been saved? Well, the terrain has saved them. So rather than taking more time to try and bust up into smaller units, know that the terrain is going to save those trees and just keep them in the center portion of the fire unit and burn it. It could be as simple as a, as a three to five foot little bench around that slope that slows the fire down, that head fire that comes up the slope, it slows it down enough and you've got those trees dotted along that that bench or, or again like the top of a ravine or whatever it may be um has saved those trees so don't be afraid if you have those scenarios to if if you're comfortable with it you know put a head fire back in there and, and especially in that case we just mentioned hey we got to control some saplings we need something a, a backing fire is not going to do it um if we've got the fire line in place we're going to do it that's for sure and so kind of in that case um i like to tell stories by the way if you haven't noticed but in that situation um the way we would conduct that burn so let's just say it's a 50 acre chunk it's a south facing slope the top side's a gravel road um, and across that gravel road is a big uh pasture that hasn't been grazed in a while so it's very flammable but how do we how do we send a head fire up through there and not catch that across the road on fire first thing we're going to do when it comes to just we've already gone through all the steps and we're dropping match we're going to light along the topper topper the top (laughs) edge of that fire unit and let it back off the slope 30 30 yards or so and then we'll send a head fire up through there so we have including the gravel road and the ditches we have a good 70 yard fire break um, that when we light the bottom side that it's not going to throw embers across the across the black and across the fire break so no it you're you're basically ensuring yourself and and that fire unit is is safe to be able to send a head fire yeah up through there and it will make the world of difference it's just a matter of preparing the unit and educating yourself on the terrain how fire is going to react in those circumstances and then maybe maybe it's getting the right weather conditions and the right wind to be able to make it even safer um, but just knowing how fire is going to react in the area is is paramount. And that, again, educate yourself on classes or get out there and get hands-on experience. Maybe you can volunteer or whatever yes. it may be. That's a great way to experience fire and understand how little little changes, whether it's clouds come over and block the sun for a couple of minutes, how the fire is going to react to that versus you know, a fire going up a slope or down a slope or coming across a ravine, whatever it may be. Noticing changes in the atmosphere with you're seeing more dust devils and fire mm-hmm. fire vortex type stuff, and you're like, ooh, something's going on with the humidity and, and the atmosphere. We might need Stuff's to call changing. it off. Yes. Right. Okay, stop the head fires. Let's just continue to back it and get this wrapped up. Some people, I was fortunate enough to grow up burning on the family farm with a dad who was a pyro to where I was around it at a very young age. So it doesn't really scare me nearly as much as it does some people, but one of the best ways in working with the MDC, I saw this a lot, people volunteering their time just so they could watch it and then go and conduct, conduct it on their own farm. You know, it's kind of like um, you always hear about people who are, you know, uh, have height, scared, they're scared of heights. You know, like what, what's the best advice is go face your fears. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I really want to do prescribed fire, but I'm nervous about it. Yeah. Go face your fears. Go educate yourself. Go get out there with people who know what they're doing and, and will spend time with you teaching you about what fire is, what it's doing, how it's reacting. And then you're going to become so much more comfortable around it and then begin to hopefully implement mm. it on your place. Mm. It's one of the best management tools that you can use to to manage large areas of your farm. I um, mean, huge acreages. We're can, talking yeah. burn units. Um, we're at a farm this week and, and some of the burn units in there are going to be 150 acres yeah. and that can be done in a day. Mm-hmm. Talk about managing a huge portion of the property. You can't plant 150 acres of food plots in a day. You just can't do it. No, but you can burn 150 acres of timber and that lasts three years worth of yeah. work. And it's incredible. It's an incredible tool. Now, understand closed canopy fires aren't nearly as beneficial as op- more open canopy, but that's in podcast 44, I think we talked about We it. did talk about that. All right. Important, very important thing to note. And, you know, the 
the sunlight is going to predict basically what comes back and how much comes back and how long it comes back for. So go back to 44 and listen to fire units and the response of vegetation in closed canopy forest versus open canopy. When it comes to fire, there's also like, there's basically like four types when it comes to prescribed fire. There's winter burns, there's spring burns, there's summer burns, there's fall burns. I have no idea where we're at on the notes, but you've just that's, spurt. That's exactly where I want to be right now. Okay. So when it comes to fire, you're like, whoa, there's there's four. I thought there was dormant season, growing season. Well, there's actually a little bit different just because you're going to um, stimulate different types of plant communities with those different types of burns. So Each one warrants a different type of reaction from the environment. And this is where we can get technical, um, but kind of keep in mind. So it's very broad when you say dormant season versus growing season. So a winter burn or spring burn, kind of spring and winter kind of get bunched together, and then fall and summer get bunched together with your growing season. But within that, Let's break there's it down again. a winter burn which really stimulates certain grasses, a little bit more spring, cool season grasses. So if you burn in the winter, you're going to get green up during the spring, which will probably have cool season grasses. That first green up, right, always spurs. Look at pastures. What's the first thing to green up? Fescue. Cool season grasses. Yes. Fescue, orchard grass, timothy, those cool season grasses. They're going to grow because you've burned and you haven't even you didn't burn during that cool season grass growing Period. season right and so you get a lot of cool season grasses but then you look into spring burns and you get a lot of grasses so very broad is dormant season burns so winter and summer or spring burns stimulate grasses growing season burns stimulate forbs but within that we're back on now we're back on track but this is very technical well, just for instance, last year we were we we um, helped on a fire in Iowa, and we went and checked some of the um, warm season grasses right before we burned. We went to the very center of the clumps of grasses and looked for new growth, um, switchgrass specifically. It was about and four inches tall. Yeah, that new growth was just starting to come on. This was very very early may i believe it was when we were up there mm-hmm. but the cool seasons had already begun to green up so now we are hitting the second window um during the spring and we encouraged more growth of the warm seasons when we burnt during this time frame because the cool seasons had really kind of run their the course peak or growing right. um season was already over at that time frame so now we're in the window of hey this response from the fire at this time frame because of what we're seeing in the warm seasons, man, we're going to get a good response from this. This is, this is good timing. This is going to achieve our goals because of the time frame and the response that the warm seasons have during that time frame. Yes. So then you look at growing season burns. Let's break that in half. All right, summer burns. When you burn during summer, you're going to stimulate forbs. So you're going to get mm-hmm. a lot of forbs that grow during the fall if you burn in, um, if you do a summer burn. So you burn July, August. Um, you're going to get, you still have a growing period during the fall. So you're going to get a lot of fall forbs that grow back after that fire. Um, and then you burn in September through October, you're going to get a lot of more winter forbs. Or then again in the spring, you're going to get some forbs. So those two, basically that fire, that growing season fire is going to stimulate forbs, which a lot of research kind of suggests that that's actually more beneficial for wildlife. Um, the late the late summer, early fall. And that, to me... High, high diversity. High diversity. Response from the native plant communities come back. I mean, whew. Yeah. I got excited. Sorry. And, and that's kind of the... Early on in the podcast, we talked about it's prescribed fire season. Well, it's actually prescribed fire season year-round. We just don't see a lot of burns during the summer or fall because everybody, we like to burn during the spring when it's a little bit easier to control. Um, and, and you get better burns. Summer burns can sometimes be can difficult be, yeah. because it carries, but then it dies down and then it picks back up and it's not, it's very sporadic type fires. Um, However, at the same time, even though it's kind of sporadic, you get little pockets of um, 
higher intensity fires within that unit, I, I'm still a fan of that because then you have, even if you break it down again within your fire unit, have really good pockets where it burned and then may not so well over here. But the more you are naturally, I guess, if you will, fragmenting your landscape with fire, the more diversity you're going to have throughout it in the habitat and cover that your farm provides. Mm-hmm. The, it, it's all It's all about diversity. I know we're going there. But we're talking Shocker. about... Shocker. Yeah, right. I know that's that... We, we, we called it before the podcast start, the, the big D, and it is diversity because that's the way, again, the natural landscape did things. It wasn't, oh, uh, Mother Nature says, oh, it's it's February. I'm just going to let some fire go through you know this portion um, each and every year. No, it was, hey, when conditions were, were possible and there was fuel in the ground, it burnt. And that caused diversity throughout the entire landscape. Yeah. And now we're, we've, even though some folks are starting to implement fire, we can take it another step and say, hey, let's not just focus on, you know, February, March time frame or, or, or throw in a, a late summer burn every now and then. It's if conditions are right and I've got fuel and burn units, hey, you can drop a match. In ideal situations, you have fire units set up throughout the year so whenever it gets dry you're ready to drop some fuel and and burn some places off this is the whole diversity is king type management is okay here's 200 acres and we have four 50 acre units fire units within that one of those units has been burned um, in late summer one of those units was burned in late winter the other unit was burned in late fall let's say and the other one was uh late spring so we burned it four different times but then the next year the one that was burned in late spring gets burned in late fall so it was um or not the next year but three years later so you burn a unit in late summer and for three years or however long you have fuel or that fuel is growing you have these certain plant communities that have been stimulated from that fire and then in three years You've burned it at a different time, so now you've completely swapped it, and now you have, instead of having all all types of grasses or being a grass-heavy unit, right. now you have more forbs. And let's think about that from a, from a hunting standpoint. We always got to bring it back to, okay, cool, diversity, awesome, habitat, sweet, but what does that mean for, for me hunting? When you are able to burn on, on different times of the year, throughout different times of the year, across a property again your the response from the vegetation is going to predict how the wildlife use those areas so if you're in an area that's got um, a lot of forbs or or maybe you haven't burnt that unit in a couple years and it's got really good um, growth vegetation for fawns to hide in or for turkeys to nest in versus the other units when i'm hunting and thinking about that you know, maybe it's later into turkey season. I'm getting some hens that are sitting in on nests. Maybe my gobblers are going to start shifting or start roosting in those areas that haven't been burned for a while because those hens are leaving them quickly to go sit on nests. I'm going to start focusing my hunting later season in those areas because I know, hey, that's the best cover. This is what turkeys do during this time of year. I'm probably going to be finding the turkeys on my property in there later in the season. And you just got you got to think about that from a, a hunting standpoint. I'm predicting, and I'm I'm almost narrowing down what's going to happen, where the turkeys are going to be, where the deer are going to be. You go go to the rut, the the best vegetation, the thickest vegetation. Maybe it's you burn mm-hmm. it, um, and and you've got really great grasses coming back in this burn unit. Well, that's where the does are going to want to hide during the rut. So I'm going to focus my attention on the best cover that those my farm offers and that's going to be concentrated in this unit to me it's like why aren't we doing this man why aren't we really diversifying our property and using our prescribed manage prescribed fire as a management tool and as a hunting tool to better predict where deer are going to be and how they're going to use your property throughout a year throughout a hunting season if you if you get if you begin to think about that you know, I think you're going to start implementing fire. In um, a nutshell, one of them is basically stimulating more food for the wildlife, and the other one's stimulating more cover for the wildlife. 
Mm -hmm. And by strategically placing those around the property, you can figure out, okay, they're bedding there and feeding here. That's where I'm hunting. To me, it's kind of like, okay, trail cameras do a great job of documenting what deer are doing. But say you don't, say, say you're on public land and you don't have trail cameras out. You're, you're afraid to do that on public land that they may get stolen. I want to look at, okay, how's the habitat responding to the work that maybe the government agency is doing? Okay, they burned that over here three years ago. It was around this time frame. Wow, uh, that's going to be a really good cover over there. I want to go to that. Same thing out west. If you're hunting out west and you, you know that that um, area, your unit you've been in, experienced a really really harsh fire four years ago. Hey, that's probably going to be pretty good cover in that area. Yeah. Use that to help predict where you want to be hunting, where the game's going. Did to you be. say out west? Yeah, I did. Okay, I didn't know if you were because I was reading through my notes over here, but. Yeah, for sure. Like, okay, well, I know that was just burned, and so they're feeding there, but that there, the fire was cut off right there, so it's pretty good cover and bedding, and that edge, what do you know? I'm hunting close to that edge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Great places to glass. Like you said, if it's a recent fire, not that much vegetation has come back, um, they're going to likely be feeding there because it's young, it's fresh, it's tender. Uh-huh. To me, to me, it's it's a hunting tool. And that kind of goes with, I mean, another thing in my notes here was unit size. And we talked about having a unit, 150 acres, um, possibly on this on this bigger farm. But um, that's another way you can really increase the diversity on your farm is breaking it up into smaller fire units. Mm-hmm. That way you have this kind of this mosaic of, of one-year growth after a fire, new growth after this fire uh, a few months ago. Three years ago, we burned this unit, so it's a little taller. It's a little more, um, it's got thicker grass and yeah. established. And we just kind of have this mosaic of, of different growth stages on your property. If, if you take the time to watch how the wildlife react to what it is you're doing and how you're using prescribed fire on your landscape, you will be shocked as to just the, again, that mosaic that you're creating, but how, how the, the relationship between the land and the wildlife, how they're using it at different times of the year. I think that's kind of the question of why do you, we always talk about having early succession, early succession and different old fields and native grass, whatever it is. And you're like, how, okay, if you have all this growth from forest floor to four foot tall, how are the turkeys move around? Like I always kill my turkeys in the short stuff, in the short areas um, in the spring. Well, that's where the fire really comes in handy is Boom. you can pretty much put the turkeys where you want them by burning. Boom. And, oh, Burn okay. that spring. I know where they're going to be. Ooh. They're in the burn unit. And uh, by doing that, maybe you have a late winter burn, and then you have a, a spring burn. So you've burned a month or two before turkey season, and then you burned actually right – maybe it's during turkey season. Could be during. They're going to be in the day – like the day after or the next day after bugging uh, and, and strutting like – you can help predict and improve your hunting by using and implementing fire on your place. That's the nutshell of it mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Uh, I think, I don't even know where we're at time-wise. Uh, that We've just about wraps it a, up there. Yeah. I, who knows? But in a nutshell, one thing that I didn't mention, of course, prescribed fire is a very complex thing. There's so much to talk about. That's why we We really still scratched the surface. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't even touched grassland fires and different things like that or ways to <laughs> we didn't even talk about ways to fight no let's say fire that has gotten out um but frankly we want to focus more on the benefits of it and hopefully you will start considering it on your property um one thing i, I have on my notes we talked about a little bit but just the amount of invasive control oh what do you know adam's going to invasive species <laughs> it's a great way to control invasive species think about west or out east um bush honeysuckle uh fire has been removed and bush honey's t- honeysuckles taken over the understory fire is a great way to control that if if you can get it removed enough to where you can start carrying a, a fire You've through got the it, timber. Yeah. It's got to be so the right density. another thing that I have in my notes is when we're going back to establishing fire breaks, it's important to try and get straight fire lines. Um, and I don't mean perfectly boxed in fire units. I just mean instead of having a bunch of dog legs and zigzags on your fire line it's it's great to have straight lines because each one of those dog legs could cause problems on the fire so when you're establishing them try to straighten them up um, best you can yeah if you got to cut out an acre or two that's okay but you d- you don't want those severe turns because the fire is going to heat up fuel differently in those areas and basically um, you have a smaller unit so you also think of triangular shaped fire units 
those little tight little 45 degree angles you really need to station somebody there to keep an eye on it because that's a great possibility of a fire jumping just because the wind can shift and at any moment throw an ember 10 yards and be across the line so straighten up those fire lines best you can and uh that's pretty well it on my notes let's in a nutshell i don't even know how we're going to do in a nutshell but i know (laughs) you guys really like that when we when we kind of go back over everything we discussed in the podcast so prescribed fire there's different types there's winter burns spring burns summer burns fall burns each one of those stimulate a different plant community um kind of in a nutshell uh Dormant season burns, that's your winter and spring, are going to stimulate grasses, while your summer and fall burns are going to stimulate forms. Forbes. Forbs. I said forms. Wow. <laughs> um, stimulate forbs. So make sure when you're thinking about your fire unit burning that you um, and your burn plan is that you break that up and diversify that to where you, if you burn, for us, if we burn an area in this spring, the next time we burn it, we would ideally burn it in the summer. Um, just to kind of stimulate other plant communities. Um, if you burn at the same time, if you burn this set of woods or or field at the same time every single burn, so every three years you burn it at the same time, um, and let's say you burn it in February, you're going to get really the same community. Same of, response. from Same the, response. Yeah. It's going to be pretty much the same plants that are growing there. So a way to break that up is to... Uh, burn it at a different time of the year or, you know, graze it at a different time of the year. But that's a whole nother podcast. Um, Another thing to recap are fire lines. Those can look and be a road system. You know, access is extremely important and fire lines are extremely important. So those two go hand in hand. Also look at field edges, how to um, mow around field edges, maybe disc around field edges to create fire lines or use creek systems um, to create fire lines, a blower, chainsaw, huge advantages um, watch for snags around the fen- the the field. Gosh, fire line. Fire line. There we go. Watch for snags. Cut them down prior to or, or blow around them. Blow a, a circle around them. Remove the leaf um, litter around them before you drop a match. Calling fire departments. Um, check in your chainsaws. Check in your blowers. Refueling radios. Everything. Um, dot your I's. Cross your T's. Make sure your team is ready before you drop a match. I think that's pretty well in a nutshell. Here's the last piece of advice. Think more than food plots. Think about improving the habitat long-term, managing more than an acre or two. Manage your entire farm. And a great way to do that is with prescribed fire. Bingo. All right. Until next time. We'll see ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering on the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God?